Welcome to the JLL Clustering Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Walters, Head of UK Life Sciences at JLL. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Jason Melad, who is the co-founder and CEO of StartCodon. So hi, Jason. How are you? Hi, Chris. I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining. Just to kick us off, could you give us a bit of background to StartCodon? I saw that you were started in, in 2019. It'd be great to give a like, brief overview of your business and then obviously your role as, as co-founder and CEO. Definitely. So um, it's been a crazy journey. We, at least I was brought to the table for the conversation in 2018 when I was still CEO of Cambridge Epigenetics, and I met my co-founder, Dan Rook, who was then general counsel for Cycle Pharma. And it was kind of a coalition of the willing in Cambridge saying, wouldn't it be great if we had a program that could bridge the gap between IDEA, so early funding, usually non-dilutive grants, et cetera, in academia, maybe somebody, a man or a woman and their dog have a great idea, but they don't know how to really exemplify it and make it investable to a Series A or later investor. So the idea was if you bring together multiple stakeholders, business angels, pharma, VCs, and they backed an organization like StartCodon to raise a fund and support those life science initiatives, we could help bridge that gap. And that's basically where we came um, into existence. And it's been a great journey. We've backed 24 companies so far, and we're helping them raise additional finance, build their teams, and move into larger digs. That's great. And I, I, I was reading as sort of prep for the podcast today that when it was launched, it got so much coverage. And it was sort of coverage from Cambridge Independent, Business Weekly, Industry Press. What would you think was the the market gap that you were trying to address? How, how come it had such a big impact even when it was just being formed? I think it's because people on both sides of the aisles really recognized the problem we were trying to solve. If you were an aspiring entrepreneur, never done it before, maybe you'd been through a basic accelerator program, you'd go to a venture capitalist and say, oh, give me money so I can do A, B, and C. And the VC would say, well, once you've done A, B, and C, come back and I'll give you money. Okay. And then they just look at each other and go, well, hold on a second. <laughs> What's happening in between? And then nothing, would, the cash wouldn't flow. So with the Series A plus investors saying things are just a bit too early, the pharma and biotech partner saying this idea needs to be fleshed out. Mm. And then the academic or non-academic founders going, but I've got a great idea. I just need somebody to support me a bit further to minimize the risk in what I'm doing to make it attractive. Both sides of the aisle said, oh, start code on. You're actually addressing what we both have recognized as an issue. So I think that's why it generated a lot of buzz because they recognized that we were doing something that mattered. That's great. And I, I picked up on your website that it's, it's around addressing this early stage equity gap for startups. I mean, how important, just to give our, our listeners that may not be as familiar with how the VC funding world works, how important is that business support around seed funding to these companies as they're looking to grow? I think it's essential. I mean, there's a lot of what we call dumb capital out there, just money. So contrary to popular belief, it's not a matter, in my opinion, of getting access to funds per se. It's getting access to value-add investors and a support network. Mm. You need to be able to be surrounded by people who've done it before, who are doing it now, who can actually come with you on that journey because they can speak credibly and they have the expertise as well as the experience. And so we are trying to bring not only the capital and the funds, but also that knowledge and access to our network to bring the three together to make a company successful. It's not just the money. Okay, and so when you're giving um, that support to the companies, is one of the major 
I'm sure there's, as you just described, sort of multiple parts to it, but it's one of the big USPs that StartCodon can offer is around this network and experienced individuals that have been on the journey, sort of know what works, know what doesn't, and can give that hands-on advice. Definitely. There's nothing worse than going to an investor and saying, I'm having an issue. And they say, well, okay, we'll go sort it out. Or they set the bar too high because they've never been in your shoes. We can actively say that we've built companies ourselves and we're building them now at StartCodon. So with authenticity, we can look a founder in the eye and say, I've been through what you're going through and I'm going to help you succeed and overcome. Authenticity is a great word. Um, and w- what type of business? I mean, you mentioned 24, did you say that you'd invested in today? What type of business is StartCodon looking to invest into? And what do you look for when you're choosing a potential portfolio company to work with? Well, there's a real exciting concept now called tech bio, although I don't like using the term too often. But data-driven science is something really passionate about and platforms. We invest in therapeutics, diagnostics, digital health, med tech. We're pretty agnostic in that sense. But everything we're looking at is driven by amazing teams and usually very heavy on the data side. So when I'm looking at opportunity, the first thing I notice is the individuals that are involved because I would say there's a bit of dogma, but it holds true. Let's say receive knowledge in the space that if you have an amazing team and the tech is a bit so-so, the team will figure it out. But if you have groundbreaking technology, but the team is rubbish, the company will fail. So one of the first things we do is look at the founders who are there and say, who are you? How can we help you? What are your strengths? What are some of the gaps that we can help close? When things hit the fan, which they inevitably will, what are you going to do? How will you react under pressure? Are you open to criticism and coaching? Those are things that we really highly value. And then we lean into what's the amazing tech and idea that you're developing? What's the solution for a real unmet need? It's really interesting for such a tech-focused industry, a bit like real estate has always been recognized as a people-focused business. And I think it's quite interesting, as you said, that if you can get bought into the individuals, their success, their mindset, their business plan, and help shape that, that's what makes it so compelling when they make that step up to a Series A, I assume. Definitely. And that's what investors I'm finding are looking for. They talk to the team. There's the people who are pitching the idea, the ones who are going to bring it forward to completion. It's that team. And we've spent a lot of time team building and making sure that we find people who maybe are diamonds in the rough and help them become those individuals as opposed to expecting them to have it all figured out from day one. And you mentioned just sort of at the beginning in terms of setting the scene for Start Code on that you worked with different stakeholders and sponsors that helped the initiative get off the ground. How important is it for you at Start Code on to have those industry sponsors working with you embedded into the program so that the young startups can actually engage with them as well? It's been fantastic. It's like having a family, a second family from what I have at home. So we have Cambridge Innovation Capital, which is the VC arm for the University of Cambridge. We've got Meltwin, which is Jonathan Milner, who's a serially successful entrepreneur, CEO and co-founder of Abcam. That's his business angel investment vehicle that backed us as well. So VC and business angel. We had Genentech as a pharma coming on board early days. So getting Roshan Genentech support. We also had the Babraham Research Campus, which is one of the leading biotech hubs for the UK, if not the whole of Europe, supporting us too. So you have bio incubator, pharma, investors all coming together, bringing us in as a team and being there as a support network. That's a fantastic roster of names. Really good. And I noticed that Start Codon has a venture building program is that that may be the collective of what how how you describe it or rather than a specific initiative but how does that how does that work so we're really much inspired by biology so the whole term start code on is i'm going to get very technical for those who are listening that's good that's (laughs) fine let's dive into it (laughs) the start code on is how you translate messenger rna 
into protein. So RNA is a, the same basis as the Moderna and BioNTech vaccines. Yeah. People are hearing about RNA, RNA, RNA. RNA gets translated into protein. So we thought, okay, star codon is how that begins. And it's how companies can start on their journey of translating their research from the lab into the clinic. So that's hence the name star codon. So on that journey, what people may not realize is that proteins, they most of them start with the same star codon, but whatever comes afterwards is very bespoke to what their function is. You've got proteins in your eye, proteins in your skin, proteins in your heart, whatever it may be, most of them are starting with the same start point, but they're very different afterwards. So that's what we do in our program of venture building. We say you can all get your start with us, but depending on what it is you're trying to accomplish and what you do, we'll bring in bespoke modules. So maybe this advisor, this investor, this bit of experiment, this resource, this location for you to set up your mm. company, but in the bespoke fashion for each individual opportunity. So start with us, but then everything that comes afterwards is tailored. That's great. So there's no, no one size fits all. You're essentially tailoring it to the business. Sounds brilliant. And in your background, I spotted that you worked at Cambridge Enterprise, so the technology transfer office for the university. And we've talked a lot already around the different stakeholders. You mentioned CIC that obviously work closely with the university. How important is it for you as a business or the industry as a whole to work with those types of commercialization groups, particularly at academic institutions? Is crucial. I'd say 75% of our portfolio are spin-outs from academia. Okay. Some of those come from the, let's say, more experienced universities like Cambridge, where they have a large, thriving tech transfer office in Cambridge Enterprise. Shout out to my CE former colleagues. <laughs> uh, we work very closely with them. But then you also have the other universities that are a bit newer to the space. And maybe they haven't spun out a company before, or they did one every decade, as opposed to CE that might be do one every month. So they also need support and a partner that can understand their needs. So we like to position ourselves as a go-to partner, whether you're an experienced tech transfer office, or maybe a more nascent university with great ideas and opportunities that needs a bit of extra support. Start Codon can work with both and help. I spend a lot of time and my team does as well, nurturing those relationships. That's great. And I saw that you do work with Anglian Ruskin University, which was we do. a bit around experience for students, from what I understood. Perhaps you could just explain a bit more about how that, how that works. Definitely. We believe it takes a village. And one of the great things about ARU is they've had this talent base that are hungry students who really want to understand what the future holds and get involved. So we bring interns to work with us at StarCode on itself. We bring interns to work with the companies in our portfolio. I have to say we're investing across the UK, not just Cambridge, but we try to leverage the resources in Cambridge to the benefit of all. So one of those key to our mission is making sure that we're helping lift up the next generation of not only entrepreneurs founding the companies, but the people who are going to be the heart of those companies. And that's where the internship program got to start. That's fantastic. And it's you know, a bit more perhaps of like a social purpose alongside the, the VC part that you're doing. How important is that social purpose element to you as a business at StartCodon? It's core to everything we do. Uh, we believe in impact. You can have impact and have your return on investment. They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. So we try to make sure that we are building up an ecosystem as opposed to just making an ROI on our fund, which is very important. LPs who are listening, yes, <laughs> ROI is very important, but we also want to promote kind capitalism where we lift communities up. Yeah, well, they, as you said, they're not mutually exclusive. Perhaps changing tact a, a little bit, I wanted to ask for your thoughts a bit around some of the government announcements in the life sciences industry recently. There was one that... I think the spring budget, when that came out, we were watching quite closely. I think the whole industry was in terms of what might come through that would impact R&D and, and life sciences as a part of that. One of the bits that was addressed was around SMEs would get 
27p in the pound based on their R&D tax bend. How important was that policy announcement, do you think, for industry based on all of the portfolio companies that you're working with, particularly at that younger end of, of the spectrum? How much of an impact do you think that had? Well, I can tell you from personal experience when I was at Cambridge Epigenetics getting us up and running and the companies in my portfolio, that R&D tax credit means so much to them. Best practice is not to budget for it because you never really know how it's going to turn yeah. out. But everybody says that's going to give me several months of my runway. And for companies that are surviving largely on venture capital investment, mm. those six months of R&D tax credit that they get back, that runway can make the difference between a company that succeeds and fails. It gives you extra time to hit your milestones, extra time for you to raise more capital. The fact that it's now being really brought back and in a robust fashion with that 27P is going to be so essential for the success of the sector. That was great. And the there was another raft of policy announcements, I think, last week, in fact, actually, where the government announced a new package for the life science for, for growth. Now, there was a, quite a bit in there, so you'll probably be delighted to know I'm not about to test you on all of it. But out of that 650 million announcement in packages, was there anything that, from your perspective, really stood out and you thought actually this is a really good sign from the government that they're committing further to this sector i i'll change the question i'll kind of turn on his head i would think that as a whole the package was a good start yeah but what is crucial for me is for everybody listening to understand it's just a start we have such a gap between our potential and where we are today in terms of how technologies are being adopted by the nhs which is probably arguably one of the largest mm. potential customers for startups in the environment how we can ease the spin out of companies from these universities where we have billions and billions of pounds of research funding going in but it's not translating into companies or to the clinic so there are some key issues that this package starts to address fundamentally in terms of the sector supporting companies and actually driving growth but there are some core blockers that we have to continue to push on. I'm very happy to be involved on the government's, say, efforts to really evaluate mm. how we spin out and support companies. I think that there is a cliff that we're heading towards of encouraging spin outs, but not really having the infrastructure there for them to grow and scale. So we've just kind of pushed the problem a bit further down. And I just wanted to be acknowledged that this package is the beginning yep. of hopefully multiple interventions that will get us to where we need to be. And do you think that those those further interventions, are they is that sort of ask at a central government level? Is it from other stakeholders in the industry? Is there is there anything that the real estate community of which you know, quite a few of our listeners joining in listening in will be part of? What can they do to help alleviate some of that? Or if it's things like the NHS, it's essentially sort of way up in the stratosphere and more of a central government issue to address? I think it's every level from central government down to individuals. We all have to pitch in. When it comes to real estate, for example, I know that there are multiple new developments that are being are basically popping up all over the place, not only mm. in the Golden Triangle, but across the country. I think there needs to be an understanding of what it takes to make a successful ecosystem. It's not solely the infrastructure in terms of buildings and roads, et cetera. It is also the people. And so as long as we make sure both are coming together and being supported appropriately, then we'll succeed. I think there's also a level of flexibility that we've witnessed, like hybrid working, et cetera, off the back of the pandemic, mm. which will continue going forward. And that needs to be taken into account. 
And then finally, better use of resources. Young founders are happy to share. And I mean young, I mean first time. It doesn't mean age. <laughs> I mean first time founders yeah, who are just beginning in their, like, yeah. their journey. They're happy to share facilities. They're happy to have flexible working. They're happy to be cohabitating with others. It's not just I'm a company with my own building or my own space mm. anymore. It's thinking about the world differently. I think that flexible labs or shared labs, we're certainly seeing more. Traditionally, they've been really only being developed and run, operated, owned by academic institutions or research bodies but I think actually the the development community the investor developer community from real estate side are looking to introduce more space which is suitable for having shared lab spaces shared lab equipment in the same way that you'd expect in some of the most successful incubators up and down the UK so hopefully we'll start to see that change but sticking with the real estate theme for, for a bit longer when you're speaking to your portfolio companies and you talk about you may not even talk about it in the context of the real estate industry it's probably just property or buildings but what's the main challenge that you're picking up when you're speaking to your portfolio companies that they're facing is it availability of space is it affordability what's what's the most common thing that's coming up when you're speaking to them I think it's the right space at the right time and making sure there's something available. If you imagine a typical journey from the companies we back, pre-seed a lot of them, if they're academic-based, they incubate in their labs and academia for as long as they can until maybe they go from one or two people to, say, three or four. Mm. Then they move into bio-incubator space. Now, what typically happens there is you set yourself up and you don't want to move. So you're supposed to be there for a brief period of time. And if they don't kick you out, you just grab a bit more space and a bit more space. And suddenly it's your new headquarters and nobody else gets to look at it. <laughs> so then the next company in the queue goes, well, where am I supposed to go? Yeah. So that's a challenge. And then with the growth and scale-up space, there's kind of a gap between having enough capital raised. I mean, life science, you get pretty big ticket sizes. But having enough capital raised to have a building of your own and to be able to meet those credit obligations when they do your KYC checks, et cetera, and when you're leaving an incubator. So there's a gap in between where you are a bit more mature, but not quite so mature and large that you need to have a complete bespoke space. I've seen companies that are subleasing. Let's say you're a bit larger, you've grabbed a space for 100 people, you only have 60. You might sublet yeah. that extra space. So there's a lot of creativity happening, yeah. and I feel that maybe the market will catch up to that concept. And is the affordability point, I mean, it comes up quite regularly when we're speaking to clients, particularly on the investor developer side, how important is the affordability of space to, to companies? And does that change based on the maturity that it's sort of the age of that company? I think it, it can change. I think affordability might be a bit of a red herring for some, particularly for the capital that's being raised to get the resources you need to really deliver. I feel in my experience, VCs, they don't bat an eye on the infrastructure. They will say, tell me what it is you need and I will give you the capital for it. As opposed to, oh, this space is just too expensive and you're looking for the cheapest available. I think it's more about suitability and availability. I mean, affordability obviously is always good, but suitability and availability is, I find, more of a burden. Okay, that's really, that's really useful insight. And in terms of the suitability, do you, based on what you're seeing, hearing, picking up in terms of how the real estate community is reacting to provision of new space, do you feel as if the real estate industry is delivering the right type of space or is there still a bit more work to do? Because as we touched on, there isn't really a one size fits all. So I'm interested in your general perspective really in terms of whether it's fit for purpose. I'm going to give a wishy-washy answer. That's yes fine. and no. Yes <laughs> and no. I will say yes. I see that there is a movement for purpose-built lab space, in particular wet lab space. I think we need to recognize that a lot of the future is data-driven, as I said at the start. Yeah. So we need yeah. room for bioinformaticians. We need rooms for servers. We need a lot more understanding that companies now, the balance has shifted from, you know, let's say the majority of people in R&D working in the lab 
too. Quite quickly, the majority are going to be programming, mm. and they're going to need access to that style of infrastructure, that style of office space. I feeling that retrofitting only gets you so far for existing uh, facilities. There's issues with the air circulation. There's issues with the electricity. There's issues with lots of different things. But some offices are being retrofitted with lab space and being sold as if they're ready, and they're not. So building within reason, new infrastructure, new buildings, new purpose-built, understanding that data is so important going forward, and a lot of it is informatics as opposed to wet lab, but also location and transport. Now, that's not necessarily within the control of the real estate industry. It's a lot of like dealing with local government and making sure they're on board, but there's no use building a new incubation site that's an hour out of anybody's commute way that's impossible to get to. It will sit empty, and I've seen the countryside littered with beautiful buildings that are finding it hard to find tenants. It's not if you build it, they will come. They can't even get there. So <laughs> keep that in mind when you choose your next building project. I think the transport accessibility point is so key. We're often asked, you know, what is a science-focused user looking for out of a location? And how does it compare to the traditional office market? I think typically what we're seeing, those types of companies want everything that a traditional office user wants. They want good accessibility. They want to be in an amenity-rich environment where their employees can have a you know, go for a drink after work, go for a bite to eat, whatever the case may be, as well as being in a very high-quality technical space and building that's fit for their purpose. So there's certainly a lot of work to do, I think, as you said, particularly in these the more mature clusters that we have within the UK around the transport piece, because as you said, people need to get there to make it work. Just to pick up on and sort of closing out, looking to the future, essentially, um, on the podcast, you mentioned that you've got 24 startups invested into. I saw that over the next five years, you wanted to get 48, so halfway there, and I'm sure there's there's more cooking. But you talked about this shift towards tech bio, bioinformatics, how you see the market changing. Is that influencing how you're looking at targeting or engaging with portfolio companies? Are you starting to steer your attention more on the data analytics, AI side of the equation rather than traditional biological research sectors? We are. I think what's really fascinating is that if you think about in our portfolio and others, some of the companies that have had the most success in terms of developing assets and securing follow-on financing did not start with traditional patents. They did not start with, I've been working on this project for like 15 years and I've got eight nature publications, etc. They were very clever, very driven and motivated. They knew how to get access to the data they needed and they used their know-how to turn that data into viable assets. And I think there's something really powerful about that is disrupting the paradigm we had before of spinning out is all about what's been you know, funded and like what's been published and what's been patented and this whole estate. These days, if you're very, very clever and focused and you have access to the robotics or the, the compute power, whatever it is you need, yeah. you can create value. And I find that tech investors getting into the biotech field mm. recognize that and it's truly disruptive. So when we're looking at our portfolio and looking going forward and also for future funds, I'm really excited by that space, by companies that have the power to move quickly, to develop new insights that were never there before. And their biggest hurdle, I would say, is probably getting access to really good quality data and that involves partnerships. But you can demonstrate value quickly, you can generate revenue even faster than you were before, and maybe even drive innovation to the clinic faster than we've ever seen. So it's the pace of change that's so exciting at the moment in the in the industry, isn't it? And just looking at it from a global perspective, it's been very well documented in terms of what's happening in terms of venture capital globally. And the fact that we had 
what turns out to be a bumper year in 2021 in terms of VC. I think we all know why why that was the case. And 2022 in the UK context was still good. It was based on the data that we've got over 2020. But what's your outlook like for for the VC market in 2023 and, and beyond? Obviously, it's having some challenges globally, and I think it's been quite keenly felt in the US market in particular at the moment. But are you still quite bullish about the future growth potential of, of the science and tech industry in the UK? I'm very bullish. It's one of the reasons why I'm still here. 19 years <laughs> on, people ask me all the time. I was like, oh, you're from the States. Why aren't you going back home? I was like, no, the UK is where I want to be. I think it's got some of the best science in the world, so much potential. And I would find that even though the markets are roiling right now, this is the perfect time to set up a new venture because it forces you to be lean and focused. It allows you to be bullish when other people are kind of withdrawing. And I find that even after the last, you know, let's say crisis in 2008, some of the most disruptive businesses in tech like Airbnb, Uber, et cetera, arose out of that crisis. And I find that in life sciences, this is the moment. So I say to anybody who's listening, who's thinking that this is the time for them to be a bit bearish, be bullish. If you have a great idea, make sure it's focused and go for it. What a call to action. For any entrepreneurs listening in, please, please get in contact with Jason. That's a fantastic way to close. Thank you so much for your time. Really insightful conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more on the life science and innovation sector, search JLL Clustering Insights Podcast online or subscribe via Spotify or Apple Podcasts.